Welcome to the Men at Work podcast, episode four. I'm your host, Travis Streb. Today, I am talking to Brenda Allen. I met Brenda a number of years ago when we were working together doing leadership development and executive coaching at the Humphrey Group. So Brenda was like the rock star of women's leadership development. She was traveling the world, speaking at all these conferences. She was in high demand. And she was gracious enough to let me in uh, on the mystery of what is women's leadership development. I learned a ton from her. Um, Now, over the years, Brenda has retained her rock star status and continues to be a renowned coach, speaker, mentor, advisor, and champion of women's leadership in the workplace and around diversity and inclusion issues in general. Today, she works with a company called Davis Peer, and she's based in Halifax, but she continues to work across North America and around the world. In this conversation, we got a chance to lift the veil for all of you on women's leadership development, what it is, why we need it. And we talked about gender bias, how women and men are socialized differently and what that means in the workplace, how men can lead inclusively, super important topic. Brenda also shared her views on gender pay issues, maternity leave, the difference between how men and women compete, and most importantly, how men can be champions of inclusive workplaces. Here we go with episode number four. Let's dive in. Brenda, you and I met several years ago when we were working together at the Humphrey Group. You had been there uh, well before me, and your reputation was certainly one of uh, powerhouse female leader, working with powerhouse female leaders. But I'm wondering for my audience if you can give them some background on where you've been in your, in your work, uh, where you are today, and what your, your big areas of passion are, especially around diversity, inclusion, and women's leadership. Sure. Well, um, first off, thanks for having me, Travis. It's um, great to be working with you again, and uh, I'm very much in support of the work that you're doing um, and continuing to develop leaders in this space and beyond. Um, yeah, I guess what, what led me into the, the field of diversity and inclusion was not a, a direct, linear, well-thought-out, well-planned path but really one that um, lifted from, I guess, me being a person who always sort of paid attention to uh, folks or groups who were not the majority. So, you know, I I have a history of working in nonprofit organizations, um, working with uh, everything from young male sex offenders to people with disabilities, uh, such as autism, uh, to working with at-risk youth uh, in the streets, living with addiction or homelessness, and um, you know, otherwise marginalized uh, populations. And so when I got into consulting, I, you know, I came out of, of business school with an MBA and really probably could have lifted off into any area of diversity and of uh, consulting at that point. But 
it was, I think, quite natural that I gravitated still towards a career that was focused on um, developing and empowering people who um, really needed some support in terms of just being seen as equal um, equal contenders in the world of, uh, of business and really just being successful and, and thriving as, as personal, uh, as you know, individuals and as professionals. So, um, so that's sort of the, the entry into career. Um, and yeah, I've, I've worked with an impressive amount of women, um, all around the world from, you know, all the big, companies, pretty much every big company that you could probably name, I've, I've touched at some point, and almost all have been in the area of women's leadership development. Um, so I've worked with a, a lot of the big technology companies, uh, healthcare companies, uh, mining, oil and gas, finance, IT, pretty much every industry. And I've worked in... Um, all around the world. I've, I've worked in through Latin America, Central South America. I've delivered training to leaders in uh, Paris and other amazing cities through Europe. And most recently, I've been working with companies that are doing operations in uh, countries such as Mongolia and Kyrgyzstan and uh, visiting some places there where uh, experiences um, women are facing there as professionals um, is is similar to women around the world, yet of course quite different in the um, cultural nuances. So uh, my experience has been vast, and uh, it certainly humbled me and taught me a great deal about uh, what I have to be grateful for, uh, but also the um, just the vastness of the the work yet to be done in this area. Yeah, I mean, it's in, it's interesting because when I when I first met you, you were working on a women's leadership program, and as I remember, one of the first times we ever got together, you actually took the company through, you know, a a, a mini version of a women's leadership program that you were working on, and it was interesting for me because there's always been this mystery. As a man, you you don't get invited to women's leadership programs very often. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in knowing, like, what is the, what's the crux when you're, when you're designing or helping a company build a women's leadership program, what is the crux of it? Like, what is women's leadership all about? Like, and how is it different per se than, than general leadership development? Well, I really do believe that uh, a lot of women um, would agree with the statement that uh, they could do, uh, they could feel more confident. You know, I think it really comes down to confidence, confidence and, and, and courage. And when you think about the fact that we're, you know, we're really asking women to show up as, you know, strong, confident, capable leaders at their workplace, yet the reality is in many organizations, they're not seen as that, that's not the perception, that's not the natural bias that people cast upon women. So in many ways, women are actually starting from behind the finish at the start line. And so um, they require a little bit extra courage and a little bit extra confidence. Yet, you know, they've really been socialized to have neither of those two in, in a really strong way. 
So I would say, you know, every women's leadership development program has a very big component of helping women understand their self-worth and really believing in that, like very, very deeply believing in that so that they can show up in a way that they're like truly representing um, their own belief in themselves. And, and when they do, um, they're very, they can be very convincing and, uh, and, and that will help to change perceptions of others uh, around who they are and what they're capable of. You know, it's interesting that you, you talk about the socialization piece. It sounds like a little bit like sometimes the programs are aimed at like undoing some of the social programming that, you know, maybe in our school systems or wherever else or just in society that we've, we've programmed women to have less confidence and, and courage. And it's an, I had a conversation with a guest a few weeks back and we were talking about that. She talked about the differences between how boys and girls are socialized. And I have two daughters and, and it really hit home because I, I had just finished going through the parent-teacher interview cycle. And my oldest daughter, who's 12, she's in grade seven, and she's doing super well. So we, my wife and I went in to talk to the teacher just to get a, a sense of, hey, you know, how's it going? And her feedback was, oh, it's so great having her in the class. She's so quiet. She sits still and does her work. And there's just all these rambunctious boys all around her because, you know, it's like 18 boys and six girls in the class. <laughs> and so I walked away from the conversation at first going, oh, great. She's doing what she's supposed to do. Um, in essence, like she's sitting down and shutting up and doing her work. Yeah. And I realized, I'm like, that's actually not really going to serve her super well <laughs> down the road, you know, just to sit down and shut up. Is I'm wondering, is that a theme that you see or are there, you know, is that just kind of a, you know, a one-off thing or is that a common refrain? Well, it's a really interesting comment. Um, unfortunately, we do see those behaviors continuing and repeating themselves with women at the boardroom. And I'll never forget, um, I was called in to work with uh, a leader, a female leader, um, out, out your way in British Columbia, actually, Travis. And uh, she was a, a highly sought after young lady who was, uh, showed a tremendous amount of potential. And it was at a company, and, and many of the directors of various departments were sort of internally fighting over this young woman because she was so bright. And finally, one of them was successful in uh, getting her onto their team. And so, of course, they were very proud of themselves. And after a while, this uh, leader called me, the, the gentleman, who, the director who got her, he called me and he said, I need your help. And I said, what's going on? And he said, well, I, you know, I, I was successful in getting her on my team. Problem is, she doesn't say a word in meetings, like not a word. And I said, oh, well, you know, that's, I guess that's a problem. And he said, a problem? Like, I mean, I've, I've brought her in because of all this intelligence she has. And, you know, she is uniquely capable of, at, at responding to and speaking to certain points. Yet, you know, she really says nothing. And, um, and I worked, I came in and, and worked one-to-one -one with this individual for a very long time. Um, and, it, it, you know, sort of start with the approach of you realize that you're actually being paid to speak at the, these meetings. That's why they're <laughs> inviting you there. Yep. Um, and, and that, like, reality still really did nothing to kind of crack the code on getting her to speak up. It was really when she honestly started to believe for herself 
that she had insights and intelligence and information that no one else at the table had and that other people truly would assign value to what she was saying before she was actually able to start speaking up at meetings. And, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of sad that it takes that amount of work and effort to get someone who is so talented to feel comfortable and confident to, to speak at those tables. Uh, I'm sure, Travis, that you uh, do everything, you and your wife do everything to um, help your daughters not end up like that. Um, but, you know, it, it does show up in classrooms. And while it is seen as very good behavior to sit still and listen, and, and frankly, sitting still and listening are also by the way, excellent leadership qualities. Um, and we don't necessarily need to have rambunctious leaders. Um, so perhaps she is already dis displaying better leadership qualities than the young boys in her class. However, as long as at the same time, she feels that you know, when she does have something to contribute, she feels comfortable to do so. Right. I think, yeah, obviously we're still, well, we're kind of early days. I mean, childhood programming gets pretty baked early on, but it's an interesting, an interesting realization. And I, I think your example is, is a good one though, because I wonder like how, so the, this director, he brought you in to work with this woman and it was around, you know, building up confidence and, and just in her own belief of self. Mm -hmm. Is that the crux of, of women's leadership in your view? Yeah, I would say so. I think it, it really is about um, self-belief. It's, uh, I, I think you have to feel it before you can show it, you know, in many ways, and you have to show it before you can convince people of it. So um, people need to experience something to believe it. And in order for, you know, folks in an organization to really see the potential in a woman as a leader, they need evidence. And, and for that woman to provide that evidence, it needs to start with her really believing in herself. So it, it, it just, it does come back. I've been working with a, a company for about 10 years in helping to develop their leaders. And I've put through their women leaders. I've probably, not probably, I, Altogether, they've done about 14 different modules of training um, that I've developed for them. And every single time we develop another phase of training and we go out and assess the needs of, you know, what is it that the women now need in this next phase of training, every single time a self-esteem or confidence module is requested in every program. And I, I kind of feel like, you know, well, we did that last time and the time before, like, do we really need it again? <laughs> so, yes, unfortunately they do. They still, they're still feeling like they need more of that. So it's, it's quite amazing. Well, it's, it's interesting though, because I, like, I guess I'm, you know, I'm interested in knowing what the gender side of the equation really is or what the gender equation looks like in this, these situations. So how much of the, the, the there's there's obviously some burden on on women to develop themselves, mm -hmm. yet there's I think there's two other big forces. We know one is systematic and the other is just pure gender. In a systematic, it's like how an organization runs itself, I suppose. And do they, you know, are they are they aware of the culture they've created? And then more importantly, there's just kind of straight up, you know, culture gender 
issues that come up and how much of how much of the kind of male female dynamic and i know there's a lot more to diversity than that but how much of it is is coming up in these programs you're developing delivering yeah it's um you know there's a lot so i would say the first 10 years that i worked in this area um i would say the onus was always kind of on or the emphasis was on training up the women so like we can't change the way that men behave in the workplace. Therefore, what we can change is the way that we show up. So let's put our efforts and focus on that. And, and that was really the approach that can quite consistently in this area of practice, probably for the first 10 years. Now companies are saying, you know, and particularly women are saying, hold on, like this isn't only our problem to solve, right? Like there's, it's great that you're giving us the skills and we do need that training. However, what is the company doing to support us in our development? And what are our male counterparts doing to encourage and support us and, um, and help us to grow and, and to learn from us? And so nowadays, it's, it's very seldom do you see women's leadership development programs being offered in isolation or in the absence of any other type of kind of wraparound um, services. So a lot of companies we work with now kind of bring us in to do more like diversity and inclusion strategies out of which usually falls a leadership development program specifically aimed at women. And then of course there's some other um, training um, and policies and procedures that companies usually try to wrap around as well. Um, when it comes to kind of what can the men be doing um, to support the women on, you know, as women would call it, like, what are we doing about the other side of the coin? And the other side of the coin is men, right? So like, yeah. you, you can train us to speak up all we want. But the fact of the matter is, if a man doesn't want to listen to what we're saying, because they don't think that what we're saying is worthwhile, simply because we're a woman, and that does exist in, in some cultures. And even in some companies right here in Canada, um, they, they have their right in saying that, um, you know, what, to what end are men also responsible to help provide equality at the workplace? And um, so, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of really good research that's been done in this area. And really, you could, the area, I guess you would call it inclusive leadership. So, how as a leader, whether I'm a male or female, how can I be inclusive in the way that I lead? And um, there's some very good research done in it, but there's a nice little uh, acronym called EACH, which stands for empowerment, accountability, courage, and humility. And those are kind of cornerstone words that remind leaders that you know, if you really want to help, in this case, women be more successful and feel more confident in the workplace, um, you need to empower them. So providing them with the opportunity to grow and succeed. You need to um, provide accountability, you know, allow them to take ownership of things, um, allow women to succeed and fail, uh, show confidence in the fact that, you know, you know that they will succeed and fail just like you do as a leader. <laughs> uh, have courage. So, you know, putting aside um, any personal interests, showing vulnerability, um, taking a risk on, on someone who 
hasn't yet been given the opportunity to um, show what they're made of, really. Having the courage to be that person who believes in um, a woman who's on her way up the ladder, for example. And finally, humility, which is owning your mistakes and accepting criticism. So, you know, nobody is perfect. And I'm working right now with a, a, a large group of men and, and coaching them in this area of inclusive leadership. And they all seem to feel like they should be, and I'm using air quotes when I say should, they should be um, naturally very good inclusive leaders. And, you know, my response to that is, well, why should you be? Like, this isn't, you're not necessarily born with this, right? You're not necessarily um, nurtured to be inclusive leaders. Um, we're not socialized naturally to be inclusive. Um, some of us may have had role models of very inclusive parents or other role, model, other role models like leaders at work, but it isn't intuitive. And therefore we do sometimes make mistakes. Um, we do need to hear feedback of times when we're, we're not getting it right. And, um, and we do need to be humble in that this is a, a learning process and it is a journey. Well, let's talk about that for a sec. I mean, it's, you know, there, like, let's talk about the, the, the behaviors or the mistakes or the, the things that you're seeing out there that are, let's say, non-inclusive. And I'm you know, thinking, focusing particularly on, on male leaders, like, what are some of the things that you're seeing going on? Because part of it for me is in, in my work, and I, I'm, I'm still not sure. I mean, sometimes I, I think I, um, I get fed a bit of a line by men where they're like, oh, I didn't even know I was doing that. And other times I think it's sincere. Um, mm -hmm. And so what are some of the things that you see out there, maybe even that you've experienced that are just, you know, common damaging behaviors that men do that really create an, an uninclusive culture? Yeah, I mean, it, Travis, it can be so small and it happens things that happen every day. So a couple of examples, because I think, Leaders are very aware of the big offenses now, like they know very, I think they're more aware of the big right and wrongs in this area, but the little everyday thing. So uh, an example a woman shared with me uh, a few months ago. So um, the, the big general manager comes and says to the organization, I want everybody's ideas on how we can make this uh, work area more efficient. And so everyone go away and think of your ideas. So this woman comes back to her boss, who's reports up into this GM, and she says to him, you know, I have a few ideas, and I'm very excited to share them with the GM. And uh, her boss says, well, you know, I, I think that the best way for this to happen would be for me to take those ideas for you, because that's, that's the hierarchy here. And I should just um, relay those to him. And of course, I'll be sure to let him know those were your ideas. And um, so that, that's just an example. Now, again, was that intentionally being, I don't know, like gender bias? Was it, who knows? But the problem is a lot of women in that example would not have had the confidence or comfort level with, saying, with kind of pushing back and saying, well, actually, um, these are my ideas. And I'm very proud of them, and they're very innovative. And uh, we were invited to go back to him directly, and therefore, 
that's what I'll be doing. Uh, but thank you for your offer. Yeah, so I could, that, very I could imagine that being pretty would tough. would have the to do that. And it could be the case that her male lead was kind of banking on the fact that she wouldn't have the confidence to do that. And um, therefore, uh, was kind of credit for those ideas. That, unfortunately, is very common. And, and I hear stories like that. I've probably heard a thousand of those. <laughs> a thousand yeah. little, a thousand tiny yeah, Another cats. one is introductions. Hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, and it's, it's, yeah. And then another one is kind of like introductions. So uh, we're at a uh, business networking event together and, uh, you know, with a, another third person and they introduce, oh, this is Travis Stabb. He's an incredible executive coach who works for this company. He's been doing this for the last decade. I just can't say enough about it. And this is Brenda. And, uh, and then, and that's it. So <laughs> Brenda now has, um, there's, there's two ways this plays out. Brenda either needs to uh, just shake her hand and say, that's right, I'm Brenda because she isn't able to find um, the confidence to actually now complete her introduction on her own behalf, or she needs to somewhere from the bottom of her shoes, drum up the confidence to be able to say, yeah, yes, I am Brenda. And uh, you know, this is, this is who I am. This is what I do. Um, but these are very small oversights that happen on a daily basis that can have significant impact on um, women's ability to thrive and succeed in the workplace and really advance in their career. So, you know, when we look at the statistics and see that women still, uh, you know, don't make as much money, aren't in, aren't in senior roles, are not sitting on boards, aren't leading organizations, um, still working in um, more traditional women roles uh, in leadership organizations. Um, that those little tiny day-to-day -day incidents are contributors to all those statistics. So, you know, the, the statistic around the pay gap, the gender pay gap, mm -hmm. so this one has been getting a lot of attention recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, you know, growing up with, a, you know, parents who are super progressive and actually talking about this stuff, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s, it was always like, yeah, the, you know, there should be, there should be equality of pay. And then now I find the conversation is shifting where now we're saying, well, yeah, but remember women have babies. Yeah. And it, it, so I mean, it's becoming a more common conversation where people are taking a different lens on it. I don't know how much of that you have heard, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, um, you know, good, bad, or, or indifferent. Well, um, you know, it's interesting. Like, women can have babies, and, and I sort of jokingly said, so what's that worth? What's the dollar amount that that would be? How do we quantify the value of that? Um, because today, and this is just quoting a statistic I saw this morning, I think it's still a 16% uh, pay differential in Canada. And, and I read this today because as of January 1st, um, Iceland, of course, has made it illegal for companies to pay women differently than they pay men. 
and it, it's just they, they'll be fined and, and I don't think it's a small amount. So now we look at a country like Canada and there's a, on average a 16% pay disparity. Um, I don't think there's any good excuse for it. The fact that biologically I am capable of bearing a child um, should not play against me when it comes to the value of what I'm able to contribute at work. I think they're two completely different things. Um, the fact that I am able to have a child and if I choose to do so, uh, I, there are policies in place that um, protect both me as a, as a parent and the company as an employer during that leave. And what we are seeing more and more now though, Travis, and, and I know you can relate to this as a, a very, very involved father, that it's now more of commonly seen as a parental leave rather than a maternity leave. And I think this is key. You know, uh, we've been working with a company, also a, a Canadian company, where the COO very recently said to us on a confidential interview that, you know, look, the elephant in the room here on the topic of gender diversity is that women can have babies. And I was like, okay, you're right. They, they sure <laughs> Yes, can. they can. Yes, we can. And um, why is this the elephant in the room? And he said, well, look, if you don't think that that biases um, the decision-making process of how women's careers are going to go, then you, you know, you've got your head in the clouds. But basically, from the moment of recruitment, into developing folks like you know do i really want to pay for this young woman's mba when who knows two years from now she could get knocked up and end up leaving the company to raise her children and and may even never come back you know um maybe that informs in a in a perhaps an unconscious way uh whether or not that person will be sponsored through training like uh, formal education um, also, absolutely informs advancement decisions. You know, do I want to put a department and a team in the hands of a leader who um, is essentially seen as a flight risk because they are capable of having children? And, um, and it's very, very difficult for men and, per and perhaps also other women leaders to not think of those things. And so, in a way, he's absolutely right. It is the elephant in the room on the topic of gender diversity because there is no way that any of us, and you and I are very powerful people, Travis, but by the end of this hour, it will not be the case that men are able to have babies. I, yeah, not, um, not based on my prediction. We've only, you know, we've only got like a half hour left, so my gosh, <laughs> we better hurry if we're going to do it. Um, yeah, I, how much of this are you, I mean, like, what I'm seeing out there, especially as, I mean, I know millennials get talked about a lot, but I'm going to talk about them some more. As millennials are, let's say, more prominent in the workplace, it's an interesting argument to look at, a, let's say, a woman being a flight risk. Because in essence, research tells us that every single person who is a millennial is a serious flight risk for your organization, whether they can have a baby or not. Um, you know, they're choosing to spend on average about four years in a job before they just leave in essence and they'll leave for some from not crazy reasons but they'll leave for you know some reasons that are very different from when their parents might have left a job if they ever did 
-hmm. So how much of this do you think can and will go away over time as we see more more millennials in the workforce and leading or how much of it is like pure systematic and this gender issue needs to get dealt with yeah probably half and half i mean i i have um an incredible amount of optimism in uh this generation that follows us i think that they uh they understand the need for flexibility and adaptability in work environments in a way that no generation before ever has. So I do believe that accommodation, whether that be parental leave or uh, accommodation required for people with disabilities or other needs, will be um, seen and managed in a much, much better way than ever before. That said, I, I do believe that this issue of, um, you know, the gender gap, whether that be through leadership or pay, is, is not going to go away um, generationally. It's not just going to fade away. I think we've always kind of hoped that. I have a lot of friends who are my age, men and women, who say, you know, Brenda, you work in the, like, helping women become leaders. Like, aren't we kind of finished with this? Like, by now, shouldn't we be done with this by now? Like, <laughs> we should. <laughs> and I'd say, like, Unfortunately, honestly, the needle has barely moved. And, you know, the areas where it has moved, where, for example, women are now participating more in um, formal education in the STEM industries, you know, science, technology, engineering, and um, uh, medicine. And I think that we see um, women now in those kind of non-traditional industries we're seeing more women-owned businesses starting up and running and being more successful than ever before. Those, these are big hallmark successes right here in Canada. Um, and we celebrate those. Uh, we celebrate those like the biggest victories you've ever heard because, frankly, the other metrics are, are not moving. Uh, they're just simply not moving. So I don't think generational um, changes is going to solve for this. Uh, my hope is that the younger women who are coming up um, are starting a little closer to the start line than perhaps generations before have. And, um, and hopefully the men who are working with them see this as, as an area of need, as an area for improvement, um, and see the role that they can play in helping their women counterparts succeed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see it to some degree in my coaching, uh, especially with men. I think the other, the, the part that I see, though, that it is more, let's say it's, it's more of an undercurrent, is less to do with, you know, macro level culture and, and, and pay gap, and more to do with what's going on inside the organization. And, you know, one of the concepts that I've been reading up a lot on is this idea that of the workplace as a masculinity contest. And it was, there was a, this short, pithy, super interesting paper that came out from Jennifer Berdahl in UBC. She was talking about the idea that, in essence, we create cultures in our workplaces that celebrate traditional masculine strengths. So things like win at all costs, uh, you know, whoever, whoever says mercy first loses in essence that, that shows up like 
work the longest possible hours and you know make that the mark of success there's you know, the take no prisoners approach and these these masculinity contests they they exist everywhere in workplaces you know some some have managed to create cultures that are amazingly inclusive and they should be celebrated but there's still a huge undercurrent of this masculinity contest or even inside a big organization there might be pockets of it and i'm wondering how much of that you see in real life because you know the paper is good but i'm curious from a practitioner's perspective are you seeing that out there still oh 100% 100% i mean it's um very rare very rare to find companies who don't have that culture um that's very rare and so women then have a choice to either assimilate and kind of join that that competition or be seen as um you know not a contender you know to, to be seen as not a contender which which is basically self-excluding from opportunity within the organization um and if you're showing up to work every day and your mindset has been self-excluding from the competition you are as disengaged an employee as i think probably humanly possible so you're miserable um and that shows up in all kinds of hor you know horrible ways and sad ways it can affect your your health your personal life your relationships um and of course just your overall quality of life so um it, it's something to be very aware of and i think leaders and owners of businesses need to be aware of the risks associated with this culture it's it's it can be very damaging and i'd say not only to women i think there's men you know and i'd say you're one of them travis who um that isn't the kind of culture that you thrive in and uh, you would probably feel the same pressure to either uh you know jump into the race or pretend to right but uh so it's it's not only women but i'd say it's less the, often the case where a woman will want to compete in that way well and i think that's that's part of you know whether it's ingrained in our dna or socialized that's part of who we are as as men and women and i i think you're bringing up an important point which is it's not it, it's not enough to in essence train women to behave like like they like they see their male counterparts as you know take no prisoners you know work as long as you can because in essence you're you know you're forcing someone to take on leadership traits that they do not want to take on just mm -hmm. to be successful in the workplace which is pretty darn important in today's day and age mm -hmm. yeah and some women you know some women do like to take on that kind of um that competition that race there are certainly a lot of competitive women so it's not sort of an all or none kind of conversation but um we do know generally speaking that women tend to be more collaborative than they are competitive and um and, and i can say i'm a i am a competitive woman i'd say i'm competitive mostly with myself than i am others but if i was working in an organization with you today i would want us my ideal finish with you and i would be that you and i would tie we would both win like that that's that's my mindset 
And I am, you know, I think I've been successful because I am competitive, but I don't compete in a way that requires me to win and you to lose. So it's a very different mindset. It's not to say that women are not um, goal-oriented or, or out to be successful, just like men are. I think the mindset in which they do it could be um, slightly different. That's a really important distinction. And because I, I think a lot of times that's the interpretation is like, well, if we get rid of, if we get rid of competition, what's the point? You know, it's what's made, um, you know, this economy so great. And so what you're saying is competition, it does, it can still exist, but it's with a different mindset. And that is, that's fascinating. How, where do you, like, do you see that showing up in certain organizations? Like, do you have examples of what that might look like for, like you said, there are a few, you know, a few examples of these amazing cultures. Have you worked in them and seen them? Yeah, for sure. Um, so just this conversation here is reminding me of conversations that, so I've been doing a lot of work with the transportation industry in Canada. And um, I've had the pleasure of working with the Toronto Transportation Club for um, many years running their uh, ladies luncheon every June. And we have about 350 women from all modes of transportation, of course, including air, rail, ocean, and land. And, um, and these women come, you know, of course, it's a male dominated industry, they get to come together and celebrate being a woman in this industry. And the absolute genuine support from their male counterparts is overwhelming. It's really overwhelming. And the message that, that these women say every year is we will be successful in our industry alongside of our brothers, not in spite of them. And it, it, like with the support of our brothers, not in spite of them. And I think it's, it's such a lovely message because it's not, it's, I think a lot of companies think, well, if it's like a scale, if women go up, that must mean men go down. Like, you know, that there has to be a trade-off. And I think that, you know, that organization really gets that. It, it doesn't have to be that way. I think, you know, women can, be lifted by men and then kind of walk together as opposed to um, having that sort of trade-off formula mentality. So, I, you know, I really herald them. I, I've, um, I, I must take this moment to boast, but they presented me with the Volunteer Service Award this year, um, the John Foss Volunteer Service Award, and I was overwhelmed because I am so proud to work with an organization that gets it on so many levels and represents, um, I think everything that I believe in when it comes to how men and women can work and be successful together. So there's pockets of it, it, it's, it sounds like, which is amazing. Um, yeah. You know, have you heard of, I'm sure you've heard of Wealth Simple? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, a FinTech company and um, we've done some work with them um, over the last year. And that's another company. Now, when you talk about uh, the millennials, this company is like kind of owned and run by uh, the next generation. And they are, are bright and they, they, they should be case studied like crazy. I'm sure they are in many schools, but um, they're, they're doing everything right. You know, they, uh, from their workspaces to their, um, their collaboration 
um, efforts and the, from the leadership down, their culture is extremely inclusive, very adaptable, very agile. And, um, you know, as a woman who's delivered some services in there, I, I, I also would say that um, they're a spotlight organization who, who gets it. Um, Microsoft, I've done a ton of work with Microsoft in the US and in Canada. And uh, for a long time, I'd say they were pretty quick out of the gate, you know, a uh, decade ago in terms of understanding that if we want to have the best in our company, which they do, um, then they need to access the full talent pool. And the full talent pool, you know, if you aren't considering uh, women in that talent pool, you've lopped off 50% of your talent pool. And so it's simple math. Microsoft got it right out of the gate. And, um, you know, I've been absolutely blown away with the efforts that they've had from the beginning all the way through to today in diversity and inclusion as well. Well, I, interestingly enough, I mean, their, their results as a business have been amazing in the last few years. I mean, since, since Satya Nadella took over as CEO, I don't know if that coincided with their efforts around gender diversity and diversity and inclusion in general, but it, you know, just recently read this article about they've been, they've been very quiet compared to Google and Apple and others, but man, they have been killing it on the business front. And so there, there clearly is a business case for creating these uh, types of inclusive cultures. Beyond that, though, they're just better places to work, in my view. I mean, it's part of the you know, part of the research that I was reading from Jennifer Berdahl. I you know went down a bit of a rabbit hole, and it there's there was this strange bias that existed, and it was gender neutral around these masculinity contests, where in essence the everybody or the majority of people working in organizations that have these, you know, take no prisoners, work crazy hours, you know, win at all cost mentalities, the majority of people don't want to even be there. They don't want that. But the difficulty is they think everybody else does. So they're afraid to speak up. And I think for me, part of it is if as a man is knowing that women are less likely to be the ones to speak up. It's like, if you're a man in an organization working with a with a culture that you don't particularly like, if you don't have the ability to leave, but you have the courage to speak up, you might want to do it because it turns out that most of your colleagues would agree with you that this kind of place is terrible to work in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, um, it's kind of like the, uh, there's the culture and then there's the ghost culture, I call it. The ghost culture is the real culture, right? It's the, you know, I, I love when, you ask leaders, so how would you describe the culture of your organization? And they just say, well, I would say it's, you know, they use these wonderful words to describe their culture. And then, you know, you interview some folks throughout the organization in a, in a very safe, anonymous way. And I'll tell you, the ghost culture or the real culture <laughs> is markedly different from what the leaders think it is. And and this should be seen as a business risk to those leaders because the um, lack of clarity and a perception and understanding of your workplace culture can have detrimental impact on your business results. And um, if leaders are more aware of what their real culture is, then they can actually start to do things to um, make it work for them, like the machine that they want it to be, you know, and 
So I think you're absolutely right. Having folks be able to speak up and share their real experiences of what it's like to work somewhere is a really great start in um, creating some momentum for a more positive, inclusive workplace. I'm, I'm curious about something else though. I mean, this is, it, it's great when you, when you build these cultures and you create these programs and it, you know, you've, you've delivered so many women's leadership programs. And the thing in the back of my mind is like, how are you bringing men into the conversation? If, you know, if, if women are saying, Hey, it's the other side of the coin, it's the biggest thing. How do you bring them in there? And, and I think what I see is like, well, you, you'll end up with a, a really, a really note, noteworthy male leader who might sponsor a women's development program or who might be there as a spokesperson and is really super inclusive. And then there's like the, as you call it, the ghost culture of the rest of the, of the men in the organization who may not know what's going on, but may be able to contribute. Like surely there've been examples where you can actually bring men into the conversation to help them see that this doesn't have to be a win-lose or that they can to help answer some of those questions you know, and even answer the questions about what about the whole women have babies things to get those things on the table to be discussed. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right. And so I would say, you know, when I have the opportunity to have the uh, men involved in the picture, um, I usually start with trying to establish a baseline of how aware are these men of the issues or challenges that are being faced by women in their organization. Awareness is kind of step number one. Like there are, in many cases, men, like you've said, men, men will often re say that um, they don't think that they do anything to stand in the way of women being successful. And if they do, it's definitely not intentional. You know, they weren't, they didn't realize. So there's, there's kind of this, like, we need to lift the veil and draw awareness to the fact that it isn't just some, you know, woman named Brenda on a podcast who's having an issue with this. It's actually, you know, a large majority of women in most organizations around the world. Like, this is actually an issue, and it's probably happening in your organization to more than one woman. So that's kind of number one is being aware of, of the issue um, and then working on trying to build their desire to want to do something about it. And um, that's, that's kind of got a bit of a teaching component, you know, having men understand that um, there is something in it for them. There's something in it for the organization and there's obviously something in it for the woman by having men um, become more involved, become more um, invested in the development and advancement of women within their organization. Um, and that I'm not talking simply about building and creating a business case for uh, gender diversity, because I think that's probably too textbook. I'm talking about making it personal. You know, I'm talking about making it um, be something that keeps them awake at night because their desire to do something about this um, becomes a burning platform for them. That's, I think that's a, a, a unique approach and one that I don't see. And I think that the, the one I see a lot is where it's like, 
men are brought into the conversation in a, in a, in a way that feels shameful. Like it's yeah. like, Oh, well, tisk tisk. And yeah, there are like, there are times and I've, I've coached men where it's like, yeah, there, you should definitely have some shame around this. And it's not everyone. I mean, part of it is, I love that approach of like finding the, that nugget for them that they actually want to be engaged in this conversation. So it doesn't become a thing where it's like, well, I'm the, you know, chief HR officer and I'm a man. So I, I guess I, you know, better show up and talk about gender diversity or whatever else. Or I, I'm the kind of token male talking about this. It becomes a, a much more common conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like some of those awareness conversations are kind of cool. Like the ones I'm having these days um, are, are neat. Like I talk about inclusive leadership, which means, you know, basically not only respecting and appreciating diversity, but creating a space for everybody, regardless of their experiences or past or, or makeup is seen as a valuable contributor. Um, inclusive leadership conversations, usually most leaders will say that they, you know, treat everyone the same, that they um, provide the same opportunity to everyone that they consider themselves to be very fair. And, and it's like, you know, have you ever heard anyone admit that they're a bad driver? Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, well you know, everybody would say they're a good driver. Unfortunately, the amount of car accidents that happen on the road suggests that we're not actually all great drivers. Um, yet very few of us would admit that we're bad drivers. So the numbers of uh, the lack of female rep representation in middle and senior leadership, this organization I'm working with, unfortunately dictates that, you know, the majority of leaders who are describing themselves today as inclusive leaders are, are not, like they simply can't be because it's not the case that there aren't women who want the jobs and there's not, it's not the case that there aren't women who are qualified for the jobs. It's the case that um, the leadership needs to, to tighten, needs to become more inclusive, needs to see more potential in um, individuals beyond their own comfort zone. And, um, and that's just the reality. You know, it's, we tend to overestimate our, our inclusive nature, I would say. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure I do the exact same thing. I mean, you've got I me. Just, yeah, I was just going to say, you, you and me included in that. You know, I, I think Travis, n nobody is perfect at this, um, and and it, even though it's it's not a new conversation, I don't think it's any an area where anyone is perfect at this. We are human. We are humans. Um, we tend to like ourselves more than anyone else, whether or not we admit it. And the people who look and sound the most like us are the people who we uh, feel the most comfortable around, and that bias influences so much of how we move through this world um that you know you just have to be so aware of it well that's a, <laughs> that's an interesting point to make i mean can you can you say a bit more about what that might look like well um you know i i i remember years ago someone said to me um i want you to think about the 10 people who you spend the most time with or the five people you spend the most time with and write their names down. So I did, I wrote their names down and it was mostly like my girlfriends or, you know, whoever I kind of hung out with the most at the time. 
And they said, okay, good. Now, um, just write a couple words next to each of their names to describe them. You know, blonde, tall, uh, maybe their age, or education, like interests, married, not married, you know, kids, whatever. So I did all that and they said, now, um, write your own descriptive words and basically draw a line. And, and what you find when you do this exercise is um, you do tend to surround yourself with people who look, uh, behave, communicate, and sound just like you. Um, because, you know, we feel the most comfortable when we're kind of um, alone in ourselves, possibly looking at the mirror. Um, we trust ourselves more than we trust other people. Um, and the closest uh, replica that we can find of ourselves, the more comfortable we feel. Now, the further away that variance is, the less comfortable we feel. And so it, we ha it has to be a conscious challenge to push ourselves to look at somebody who looks very, very different from us and consider them to be, um, you know, worthy of a role that uh, would be deemed to be um, highly esteemed because, or, or someone who we're going to work closely with on a team, for example. And so those, you know, those realities inform our decision-making. And that's why, you know, when you asked earlier about the millennials, uh, I, I don't think, and I said, I don't have confidence that the generational change um, will change things too dramatically. And it's really because of that, you know, it doesn't matter the generation. I do think that um, that um, kind of mindset still permeates most of us. Um, we do see, it does change a little bit geographically. We do see in some cultures and even cities where there's a tremendous amount of diversity and children are growing up with children of other uh, races or ethnicities that they tend to be more inclusive later in life. Uh, a good example of that is actually the city of Toronto, um, which I had the great pleasure of living in for a few years. And I would say it's probably, well, it is the most diverse city I've ever lived in. And a lot of the children who go to school there are going to school with, you know, between, between 10 and 25 other types of races or ethnicities represented in their schools. So their little friends that they're playing with after school don't actually look the same as them, which is a very different experience and socialization than I would have had in uh, Halifax or in Vancouver. So, uh, I, and I, I do believe that those children who are experiencing those um, interactions at such a young age will, ha will probably be uh, more inclusive leaders later in life. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that bias is, is strong. And, uh, I remember talking to a diversity and inclusion director from HSBC a few years ago. And actually it's a guy, a guy, you know, um, Tej Hezra and so Tej, Tej and I were talking about doing a program and, uh, he said to me, he was reluctant and i remember this striking moment where he said let me take you to your company's webpage and i so i'm like oh okay where are we so we we went to the webpage and he said go to the about us page and i went to the about us page and he said there he said look there's all these pictures of all these 
young, good looking white people. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he said, oh, he said, it looks, he said, Travis, it looks like a family album. Wow. And, and uh, he, he, he said, are you, do you really think that you're going to be qualified to come in and talk about diversity and inclusion when this is what the makeup of your company is? And it's like, well, yeah, we kind of just hired a bunch of people that were like us. <laughs> so it's, it's a, it's incredibly strong, but you really, it was a, it was a funny story. I mean, Tej is an amazing example of a, a super I mean, inclusive I'll, 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 I'll tell you something. Tej is an, an amazing example of, of a lot of things. Um, but he does also remind me of um, another way that I see men being involved in women's leadership development training. And that is to actually, um, in some cases where appropriate, deliver it. I, um, I think we've put men outside of that training for so long. Um, and, and part of the reason has been because we want to create safe spaces for women to be able to practice leadership skills in, a, in an environment that is comfortable, um, kind of have some you know, training wheels approach to trying out different, uh, different scripts, different poses, different um, responses or reactions, uh, different behaviors. But uh, I, I think that having men involved and men like Tej, you know, who I, there isn't anything that would make me uncomfortable in front of that man because he is so, um, compassionate, caring, um, and authentically um, respectful of all humans. <laughs> it's th that I, I think that when we find people like him, we really need to plunk them like right in the center of women's leadership development training. I don't believe that you have to be um, a representative of minority group to be able to work with that group. And um, you know, in my past, I've worked with heroin addicts and I had once a heroin addict say to me, you know, well, who are you to be giving me um, coaching and counseling in, in addiction? You know, have you ever had a heroin addiction before? And I said, like, no. And I'm thinking, is that a requirement of the job? I have to have, like, kicked a heroin addiction in order to be qualified to, to work with this young girl? Certainly hope not. Um, <laughs> And, but, but that mindset, so, and then I went on, I did some work with um, uh, WorkSafe BC and, and uh, same thing, you know, you hear from injured workers, you don't know what it's like. I'm like, well, I don't, but I'll tell you what I do have. I have a tremendous amount of empathy and, um, and, and I really do understand uh, the thinking and the feeling behind your experience and I can connect with you on it. And I hope that I don't have to experience like, a lumbar injury in order to be able to be qualified to help you in your return to work, you know? Um, and I'd say the same is true in gender diversity. Like, I don't think you have to be a woman to help this, like, to support this. Um, I, I think that men can be incredible champions, teachers, sponsors, and champions of gender diversity. And, um, in doing so, you will be seen as a remarkable leader. Like that's, that is a trait of a leader to, to step courageously into a, a place that needs um, support and, and run with it. And I love that you mentioned Tej because he's just such a, a Canadian icon for exactly what we're talking about here. 
Yeah. And that, that is so true though, that there is, there is that space. And it's something that I've, I've kind of tussled with a bit. You know, there's space for men in the conversation. There's space for women in the conversation, but it has to be a together piece. And when I, when I work with my teacher, um, on the relational side, we often do workshops and there'll be men and women. And there's time when women spend time with only women. And so it's a weekend workshop. You might have a half a day with just the women and half a day with just the men. But at some point you come together, like you come back together. So there's a sense of like, oh, we just talked about, you know, kind of what it's like to be in relationship with a man or with a woman. Now let's come back and actually do something. And I think I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you are doing that in your work and it's happening out there. Um, and, but I think there's, there's a lot of resistance. I know last year, you know, Tej and I actually shared a stage at W North, which is a, I, I mean, it's a women's conference. Men are invited and there were like five men. I, I was speaking alongside um, a business partner of mine and Tej was speaking on his own. And it's like, it was, you know, it felt a little strange to be looking out at a group of, you know, 99.9% .9 women. But after a while, you're like, oh, no, like, this is a really important part of it is to actually have the conversation. And it's not lecturing. It's just a, it's just a conversation. But I think you're right. There's a role for both. I think um, a barrier or a challenge that um, we may need to be aware of in this, like, sort of cross-pollination is the reality that some women may find it difficult to trust men as they join this um, you know, this mission in that, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of women before for, you know, for say a, a three day training session at the end, kind of the men come in to hear, you know, what they learned or takeaways or how they can help. And immediately kind of the women shut down because as much as they're like being developed on their own, they don't necessarily trust the intention or the genuineness of, you know, what, well, what will these men actually do to help us? And, what will the organization do and, you know, have things really changed within this company. And so there's, there is a little bit of um, pain and maybe distrust that may exist in some women. And I think that um, it's, it's kind of sad when I see that, when I witness that, but um, I think with time, you know, men and companies can really show women that they are genuine in their efforts and in their desire to, to support them to be, um, you know, the best that they can be and to achieve everything that they want to achieve within their careers. So um, there, may, there may take some time. I'm sure you've probably experienced that as well, but I just see this like sometimes very drastic clam up when kind of men enter the room and, uh, and they start to, to share experiences together. I, yeah, I, I see it as well. And it's completely understandable that after a day or two or even three days of development and training, there's still a lot of history there. And you don't get to just, uh, you know, erase that. And I think over time, we'll get there. And I believe it's the work of men to continue showing up and to become more trustable. And I think that's the, that's the hard work. And that's, that's what's but that's what's going to get us there is to not see that and then shy away and run away to see someone you know going well i still you know i'm, I'm feeling like i can't trust you and to go okay that's okay instead of going oh well throw your hands up i tried 
It's like, yeah. no, you got to try more than once. You got to hold the pose a little longer. So Yeah. And like one relationship at a time, you know, there's, we know that there's no press like word of mouth. So, you know, even if there's just one woman who you're able to really sponsor and work with and grow and, and help them to like fly and, and soar, um, that woman, like one thing women are really great at is communicating. And we will be sure to tell all our friends if you become, you know, the Travis or the Tej or, you know, one of these male champions that um, we love so much, we'll, we will speak on your behalf. <laughs> so um, don't give up. Find, find one or a few women who you really can take under your wing and support. Um, or, or maybe you don't even need to take them under their wing. Maybe they're just rock stars and you find a way to spotlight them. Um, then just keep doing that because that will pay itself back to you through developing yourself as a strong reputation for being an inclusive leader. Brenda, I think that is the mic drop statement right there. If you, you know, that, that kind of concrete advice around, you know, don't try to boil the ocean here. Let's figure out what are some, what's the one or two things you can do as a man out there to really support women in leadership and whether you work in a you know large corporation or a little startup there's a lot that can be done so i'd like to thank you for making time for the podcast your insights as a practitioner and as a woman who's actually been through a lot of this is so valuable for everyone out there for all my listeners and i really appreciate all of your insights that you're able to share today my pleasure, Travis, and uh, great working with you. Thank you to you and your listeners for uh, being open to continuing to learn more about this, um, this area of practice that needs uh, lots of attention. And the best way to do that is through conversation. And uh, that's what you've invited here today. So thank you. All right, everyone, that is a wrap on episode number four of the Men at Work podcast with Brenda Allen. We talked about a lot of stuff in there. There were a few references Brenda made, so I will link everything up in the show notes. I hope you love this conversation. If you liked it enough to leave a review on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or wherever else you listen, that would be amazing. I would appreciate it. If you're too busy for that, no sweat. Just keep listening. That's my main priority. And we will talk to you all next week.